You are listening to the sermon audio from 12th Street Baptist Church in Rainbow City, Alabama. More information about our church can be found online at www.12th.co. Good morning, 12th Street. So good to see you this morning. Yeah, thanks, Eddie. Again, good morning. Good morning. Good to see you guys. I will say I'm, it's an honor to be up here amongst a bunch of guys that are doing their best to be good dads, but I'm just sorry to tell you that I have been declared the best dad ever. I was given a sticker to prove it, and I will wear it until it falls off the shirt. Um, so I know you're working hard. Keep trying, but this year I win, and so um, if you don't like that, take it up with five small people that live in my house. Um, I'm... I will say, you know, as we look at a text today that is not easy to talk about and look at for some of us, I will say this, that it, it is not easy to be a father, is it? It is not easy to be a father who leads your family to Jesus. Sometimes it's easier than others, right? Um, and it's not easy to be a husband that is trying to image Christ. But man, what an honor and a blessing to see your family when they worship and when they grow in wisdom and stature of the Lord and of the word and what an honor it is to be a part of a family that we are able to have the honor of leading as Jesus leads the church. And so I just want to say, fathers, I've been praying for you. I've been hoping for you and we are standing behind you. And if you are in need of someone to talk to, if any struggles are going on, I hope that you know that this faith family is the place for that, where we can be confessional and real with one another. We can do that in our small groups, in our micro groups, where we meet in gender-specific groups. Some of us are doing that right now. Um, and if you don't have one of those, or if you don't have someone, reach out, call me. My phone number is available to anybody that comes in this building. Uh, reach out, email me, and I'll be glad to connect with you and to see what we can do about getting you connected with other guys to walk with. Because guys, you know this, we cannot do this alone. We are not geared to do this alone. And so let us lean into Jesus together. I'm going to pray for dads uh, right now, and then I'm going to also pray for our scripture and time together, and then uh, we'll begin our trek through Romans chapter 9. Father, I thank you, thank you, thank you for your grace and mercy. For, Lord, you have given men like me jobs and responsibilities in our families that are way beyond our capabilities Lord, you gave us women who married us because of the potential they saw in us. Thank you for that, Lord. Um, I thank you, Lord, that you gave us families who are gracious and patient with us. But most of all, Lord, I thank you for Jesus, who not only inspires us, who is our example, but who is our strength, who is our encouragement, who is our hope. Lord, help us to lead our families to put their hope and their trust and to find their strength in Jesus. Lord, I also ask that as we trek through this difficult passage today in Scripture, your word, that, Lord, you've been preparing hearts for this for months, even years. Lord, I know that it is not a surprise to you that we are here. So, Lord, I pray as we go through this that you would guide me, a man who is a sinner saved by grace, that you would speak through me and even in spite of me as necessary, and that, Lord, you would do your work that only you can do. For, Lord, we trust that your word never returns void. So as it goes out and into our hearts, I pray you would change us and shape us into the image of Christ for whom you have done all things, by whom you have accomplished all things. And this man, Jesus, your son, that you've given to us, Lord, thank you for him and thank you for our time together for your glory. We ask that in Jesus' name. Amen. All right, if you would turn to Romans 9, uh, I will say this. 
as we get going there, that this is one of the least popular passages, I believe, in all of the Bible. I believe that this passage is one that many people uh, choose to go around. In fact, I have seen it with my own eyes if I have served on staff with other preachers and have watched them go around the truths of Scripture that are in this passage because it is difficult, because sometimes they get flack for preaching it, uh, because it is sometimes hard to understand even for us who are preaching it. And so I've asked for your prayers this morning. Uh, But I do want to say this, that even though it is an unpopular passage for many, that it is also good for us to know that the truth about God that is in this passage affirms something that is of the utmost importance for us. This truth will change how you view God, how you understand Him to be. That means this truth will change how you worship God. That means this truth will change how you pray That also means this truth will change how you evangelize. And ultimately, this truth will change how you teach your kids or your grandkids or your friends about God and show them how you live in relationship with Him. And in a very deep and abiding way, this truth will change how you live in all areas of your life if you are in Christ. I will say this, that some of these deep truths uh, aren't going to make a difference in some of the basic things you think about and in some of the basic things you do. It's not going to change the fact that you should and hopefully are evangelizing, but it will change the why you evangelize, the how you evangelize, the, 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 the fervor with which you evangelize, if seen rightfully. R. Kent Hughes talks about this passage by giving us the history of those who have preached the doctrines within this, namely the doctrine of election. And he says that this doctrine is nothing new. It was the view of Tyndale and Wycliffe, of the hymn writers Isaac Watts and John Newton, of the evangelist George Whitfield, of the revivalist theologian Jonathan Edwards, of the founder of modern missions William Carey, of the reformers Melanchthon, Luther, Calvin, Huss, Zwingli, Knox, and a host of other Puritan preachers and other great preachers such as Charles Haddon Spurgeon and Alexander White. It is a basic element of Christian theology, but one that rubs against our Americanism in the West. The church in the West does not do well with it often. But let me say this, brothers and sisters, that I did not start understanding this. I did not come to understanding these truths even pleasurably. I came kicking and screaming to them. I came to them in a way that has changed me, and it took weeks and even months to begin to take a change and impacting on me. But man, the joy, the, the freedom, the, the worship in, in my adoration of the Father who is the best Father, who would do these things for us, that it has changed everything about me on the inside and to be out as far as why I do what I do and how I do those things. It is not easy if you have not been exposed to these, and many of us have not been. I grew up in church in the South in this very town, and I had never heard anybody preach anything out of this particular passage of Scripture in all of my life until I was at seminary. That's not because people weren't going through Romans. And so let us endeavor to not just go to a text and listen to it with ears to hear so that we might refute, but might we go to a text of the scriptures, of the word of God, 
and say, God, show us where I need to align myself in understanding who you are. Because as God reveals himself to us, it is our duty to then shape our understanding of who he is so that we rightfully see him, know him, and worship him. And that does change us from the inside out. The question here that Paul is trying to answer in all of chapter 9, 10, and 11, we're not going to go through all those today, is basically how do we know that we can trust what God has been telling us in all of the rest of Romans before this, especially Romans 8. We just spent weeks going through all these hopeful, good, exciting news in Romans 8. And now he comes upon an issue where he says he is in deep anguish over his brothers, his kinsmen, his Jewish brothers who do not believe in Jesus. And he wishes if he could, he would wish that he himself could be accursed so that they could be brought into the family into God's family. So how do we know that we can trust that we have been set free? Because a lot of Jewish people thought they were of the people. And yet you find that they are outside of God's family. And so he says, how do we know that we can trust that we've been set free and that we have been saved and will be saved on that last day? And his big statement is in verse 6 that drives everything, which says basically this, the word of God has not failed. It has not failed. It cannot fail. Even though it sometimes seems that way from a human perspective, the word of God will not, cannot, never has, never will. It has not failed. Let us pick up and read verses 1 through 29, a long text, but let us endeavor to struggle through it. Paul says, right on the heels of talking how nothing can separate us from the love of God, Right? Neither death, nor life, nor angels, nor rulers, nor things present, nor things to come, nor powers, nor height, nor depth, nor anything else in all creation will be able to separate us from the love of God in Christ Jesus our Lord. Verse 1, chapter 9. I am speaking the truth in Christ. I am not lying. My conscience bears me witness in the Holy Spirit. He's trying to get across. He's telling truth here. Did you pick that up yet? that I have great sorrow and unceasing anguish in my heart. For I could wish that I myself were accursed and cut off from Christ for the sake of my brothers, my kinsmen, according to the flesh. I love how he says, for I could wish that, because the fact that he is wishing that he could wish that means that he could never actually do that, because it means that he loves like Jesus loves, because he's met Jesus. You understand? So he could never be accursed because of that. But how he wishes he could... He says, they are Israelites, listen to this, to them belong the adoption, the glory, the covenants, the giving of the law, the worship, the promises. To them belong the patriarchs, and from their race, according to the flesh, is the Christ, or the Messiah, who is God over all, blessed forever, amen. You see, the problem here is he's saying, some people are now listening to him talk about this to the church at Rome, and he's saying, I know you're, what you're thinking. You're thinking some of these Jewish people that are a part of the covenant are not actually in. They're not following Jesus. So how can we be sure this is going to be true for us? That if that's God's chosen people, to whom belong the patriarchs and the covenants and the glory and the promises, all these things. And he says, verse 6, but it is not as though the word of God has failed. For, it's the reason why, for not all who are descended from Israel belong to Israel. You could say not all who are descended from Israel belong to true Israel. And not all are children of Abraham because they are his offspring. He quotes scripture to prove this. But through Isaac shall your offspring be named. 
This means that it's not the children of the flesh who are the children of God, but the children of the promise are counted as offspring. For this is what the promise said. About this time next year I will return, and Sarah shall have a son. And not only so, but also when Rebekah had conceived children by one man, our forefather Isaac, though they were not yet born and had done nothing, either good or bad, in order that God's purpose of election might continue, not because of works, but because of him who calls, she was told, the older will serve the younger, as it is written, Jacob I loved, but Esau I hated. A direct quote from Malachi chapter 1. Let's pause here before we go any further, and let's just jump into a few things you need to understand, and we'll break this down, and then we'll carry on through the rest of the chapter. My overarching thesis for this is how do we know this is the truth? How do we know that these truths are real for us? How do we know that God's word will not fail? And here's the thing we can stand on, that God is sovereign over even our salvation. God is sovereign over even our salvation. It's easy for us to say that God is sovereign over the universe. It's easy for us to say that God is sovereign over my difficult struggles or that God is sovereign over the, the heartaches we go through, the pandemics we face, all the death we see, all the, all the riots and the heartache that we see. It's easy for us to say that God is sovereign over that, but when it comes to our own salvation, we oftentimes don't like to think of it in that same way. And he's still the sovereign creator of the universe. And according to this text, verse 6 through 13, we see that God is sovereign in a way that he, in his election, in his choosing, that he is the one who ultimately has total freedom. We like to have freedom. We do have many freedoms. But he has total freedom. It's in who he is. Verse 6 through 13 again. But it's not as though the word of God has failed, for not all who are descended from Israel belong to Israel. And not all are children of Abraham because they are his offspring. But through Isaac shall your offspring be named. This means that it is not the children of the flesh who are the children of God, but the children of the promise are counted as offspring. What he's saying basically is this. Listen, you are, if you are in, he's going to bring it in later to the Gentiles being engrafted into the family of God, right? If you are in, it is not because you were born in the right place. It's not because you were born into the right family. It's not because you went to the right church, right? Your lineage doesn't secure your salvation. Your birth order doesn't secure your salvation, which you would think it would, but it's flip-flopped here when we get to Jacob and Esau in a minute. Who your parents are does not secure your salvation. Where you were born does not secure your salvation. Whether or not you were born into church or not into church does not secure your salvation. Praise the Lord. Your race doesn't secure your salvation. Your adherence to the law does not secure your salvation. Your attendance at church gatherings does not secure your salvation. Your lack of failures does not secure your salvation. Your righteous deeds, which are like filthy rags before the Lord, does not secure your salvation. Your strength doesn't secure your salvation. Your ability to forgive or your right thinking doesn't secure your salvation. Even your perfect theology, because we all think ours is perfect. Your perfect theology, understanding of who God is, does not secure your salvation. Your salvation is secure because God is sovereign. And he holds you. Your salvation is secure because God has the freedom to choose as he sees fit. We do recognize God is the only one who has the total freedom of ultimate self-determination. 
right? We like to pretend that we have it. I mean, everybody told me when I was growing up, you could be president if you wanted to be. That's not really true, for me at least, maybe for you. I could never be that. I could not be an astrophysicist. I do not understand. I've tried to read physicist books. I could not do it. There are things that I cannot do. There are limitations on me. God is the only one that has no limitations. He's the only one that truly is self-determined. And he is not confined by your choices or my choices, or he would cease to be sovereign. Do we understand that? He doesn't, he doesn't sit around waiting for me before he does a giant thing in the world. He will accomplish his goals. No one can thwart his plans. We understand that, right? We all agree with those things. He is the only sovereign and totally free being in existence, and all things work in his will. Nothing is outside of his will. Now, we don't understand how that works because things happen that we know he's against, but he allows them to happen for some reason. And we know in the end, all the things that happen eventually will work to the good of those that love him and are called according to his purpose and will ultimately give him more glory than it would have if they had not occurred. I don't know how it works because I'm finite. He's infinite, but that is the truth. Romans 8.28 proves that to us, right? And we know that for those who love God, all things work together for good for those who are called according to his purpose. For those whom he foreknew, he also predestined to be conformed to the image of his Son in order that he might be the firstborn among many brothers. And those whom he predestined, he also called. Those whom he called, he also justified. These are sure statements. And those whom he justified, he also glorified. He will accomplish his goals. If you are his, you will be his. That's where our eternal security comes in, not on us holding on to it so tightly that we think we're going to lose it. That's not how it works. Our eternal security is there because he is sovereign and he holds us. No one can take you out of his hand. He is sovereign over our salvation. That means his word cannot fail. It will never fail. His promises will always be fulfilled. Now, I say this, and many of you will say, like, okay, I agree. Let's get to the part I'm not sure about. Look at verse 6 through 9 again, real quick. It's not as though the word of God has failed, for not all who are descended from Israel belong to Israel, not all who are children of Abraham, because they are his offspring. But through Isaac shall your offspring be named. This means that it is not the children of the flesh who are the children of God, but the children of the promise are counted as offspring. For this is what the promise said. About this time next year I will return, God said, and Sarah shall have a son. Go back to Genesis, talking about Abraham and Sarah having a baby, Right? He says, I'll come back next year, you'll have a son. Now, he says, through Isaac shall your offspring, offspring be named, right? But you go, wait a minute, the firstborn was Ishmael, right? Remember, Sarah gave over her handmaiden, handmaiden, you know, knew Abraham, and they had a son named Ishmael. Several years later, here's Isaac. But it's through Isaac shall the people be named. That's a really important word, by the way, we won't get into too much today. But we see here, he says, it's through Isaac. See, God chose it through a different path. Now, some might say, well, that's because Ishmael was of a different lineage, not, not Jewish descent from the mom. So then he goes on into the next part of this, right? Jacob and Esau, verse 10. And not only so, but also when Rebekah had conceived children by one man, our forefather Isaac, so Rebekah, Jewish, Isaac, I mean, Isaac, Jewish, though they were not yet born and had done nothing either good or bad, in order that God's purpose of election might continue, in other words, not because of what they were doing, good or bad, but so that God's choosing would be what everything stands on. We'll see more about that in a minute. Not because of works, now or later, not because of any works, but because of him who calls. That's why. Okay? Because of him who calls. 
She was told, the older will serve the younger, as it is written, Jacob I have loved, but Esau I hated. From in the womb, they were fighting over this. If you go back and read the story. And we know that he didn't choose Jacob because he was like the better guy of the two. What do we know about Jacob? Who remembers something about Jacob? What's the word you would call Jacob? A liar, deceiver. He was always doing stuff that goes against God. As it is written, Jacob I love, but Esau I hate it. Quoted right out of Scripture in the Old Testament. And he's talking about that because Esau is the one that he is bringing the hammer down on because of the way they're living and living away from God. They're not walking with God. He says this, though. This happened before they were even coming out of the womb. Listen, your salvation is secure because God chose you before the foundation of the world. Ephesians 1, 3, and 4. Even as he chose us in him before the foundation of the world. That's why we glorify God. That he chose us first. Now that's, we don't understand that before we come to faith. We have no idea how that's happening. We don't know that. All we know is that one day we meet Jesus and everything changes. We repent, we believe, we have faith in him, and then we recognize that God has always been there, that God has always pursued us, that God has always been ours, chasing after us, adopting us into the family. And we see in Scripture there that he's the one that chose us, not because of anything you will or will not do, not because of works. Of course, God knew that Jacob and Esau, what they would do, but he didn't choose them. Basically, he says, not of works, but so that his purpose of election might stand. It's very clear. Jesus even is brought onto the scene in the gospel according to John in similar language. The prolegomena, the first 18 verses of John chapter 1, where it says in verse 12, but to all who did receive him, who believed in his name, he gave the right to become children of God. You see, there is action, there is choice, there is follow-through there we see with people. But here's what we see. But to all who did receive him, who believed in his name, he gave the right to become children of God, who were born... Not of blood, not of lineage, right? Nor of the will of the flesh, right? Nor of the will of the flesh. Nor of the will of man, but of God. We're born of the will of God. God is sovereign over our salvation. That's going to lead us to some really good things in a few minutes. So hang on to that. If you're struggling internally about these things, it's okay. It's deep. It's hard. It's contrary to a lot of things we've been taught sometimes for us, at least the way I was brought up, is, is not, not at home but in churches. It's contrary to the way that I understood Scripture before seeing this all over the place. And it takes time and it takes God's grace to work in our hearts. So let's just keep going. Look at verse 14 through 18. Here's the normal questions I hear when I talk to people about this. They really struggle with it. And they ask the same questions that Paul anticipates under the leading of the Holy Spirit, of course. And we see in verse 14, one of these questions. What shall we say then? Is there injustice on God's part? By no means. Like, well, how could he choose this guy and not choose that guy? Does that make him unjust, unrighteous? Paul says, by no means. Of course not. It doesn't do that. For he says to Moses, this is funny enough, right? This quote here is when Moses says, let me see your glory. And what does God do? He puts him in the rock and he passes by and he speaks his name to him. And he says in saying his name, he declares this about him. He says, I will have mercy on whom I have mercy, and I will have compassion on whom I have compassion. So he says to Moses. So then it depends not on human will or exertion, and not on your striving, not on your human will, but on God who has mercy. 
But the scripture says to Pharaoh, for this very purpose, okay, this is Moses, Pharaoh, counterparts, antis, right? Antis against one another. This is what he says. For the scripture says to Pharaoh, for this very purpose, God says, I have raised you up that I might show my power in you and that my name might be proclaimed in all the earth. So then he has mercy on whomever he wills and he hardens whomever he wills. The question has to be, how can God be just and righteous if our salvation is based on his choice? Right? How, how can that be just if he chooses some and not others? Doesn't that make him unjust if he condemns some and then saves others based off his own election, his own choice? Let me just, let's understand real quick. Don't confuse justice and mercy. Let's talk about them real briefly to kind of make this clear. Justice is very different than mercy. Okay, let's not confuse the two. Justice speaks of men getting what is rightfully theirs, getting their just desserts, being punished for what they deserve to be punished for. For all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. We all believe those truths, right? The justice of God demands that every man, woman, and child receive the death penalty for their rebellion. That's what justice demands. There is none righteous, he says. No, not one who is righteous. We all deserve God's justice, his wrath. Election has nothing to do with justice, though, by the way. I mean, it does in essence because it's a part of the gospel, but it has nothing to do with it in its essence of just being election. Election is a matter of mercy. And mercy is very different than justice. Mercy withholds rightfully deserved punishment. You deserve this, but instead I'm going to give you something better than that. You deserve wrath, I'm going to give you grace and mercy. You deserve condemnation, I'm going to give you freedom and salvation. See, the penalty of death and wrath which should be paid by the elect sinner, as well as every other sinner, has been paid for the one who is a Christian, has been paid by the substitutionary death of Jesus Christ. God remains just because he punished Jesus instead of punishing us. And now when he looks at us, he sees the righteousness of Christ clothed around us. Not because we're perfect, right? Not because we're born in a certain family, not because we go to church every week, but simply because he has had mercy on us in electing us to salvation and is pouring out his wrath upon his own son. God remains just and becomes the justifier all at the same time. What mercy is that? What grace? This should turn your heart to worship, to recognize our need for a savior and that we do not deserve one, that we should not receive anything but the worst. Instead, God gives us Jesus undeservedly and that he adopts us into his family as little children who need a, a father like that but cannot go get one for their own and he draws us into his own family because of his electing work. Salvation does not depend on human will or exertion but on God and his mercy. We all would agree with that in general. Here's one illustration that drives the point home for me. It's one I heard a while back. I've seen it in various forms. I don't think the illustration was meant even to be about this originally, but it's a good illustration. If a man walks down your street this afternoon giving away $1,000 bills, like $1,000 bills to every other house, and he skips your house, you'd be really mad about that probably. But if you call the cops to press charges for injustice, what's going to happen? They're going to laugh at you because you can't throw somebody in jail for being gracious and merciful and giving money away, right? The issue is not one of justice here, but of grace. God is not guilty of injustice because he chooses to bestow mercy upon some and not upon others. None of us deserve his mercy. 
Yet he gives it to us anyway. And we don't know who else is going to be brought into that merciful family. We have no idea. So for us, in some ways, it doesn't change anything because we give the gospel message that is the saving power of God to everyone we possibly can, and we leave it up to God to decide who that's going to be that comes into his family. He's the one. We always say the Holy Spirit moves on the heart, and it convicts them of sin, and then they believe, right? We know the language we've grown up with. We know the language we've heard and believe. This is the same thing just talked about in a magnanimous way here in chapter 9. The Word of God says our will and exertion can never overcome our sinfulness, but God can. And he has in his mercy and grace for so many because he is the one who's sovereign over our sinfulness even, sovereign over our salvation. Look what he talks about in verse 15. He says to Moses, I will have mercy on whom I have mercy. I'll have compassion on whom I have compassion. So then it depends not on human will or exertion, but on God who has mercy. For the scripture says to Pharaoh, for this very purpose I've raised you up that I might show my power in you and that my name might be proclaimed in all the earth. So then he has mercy on whomever he wills and he hardens whomever he wills. Now, go back to Exodus and read these. Write these down somewhere and make a note real quick. And I'm just going to read a few of them real fast. Exodus 4.21. You may say, I don't like this. I don't think this is what really happens. I just beg you to go and read this. If he would do this to one, you can't say he couldn't do it to others. Okay, so I, I, I don't like it at first when I hear it, but I see it as truth for who God is, and so I then bend myself to the truth. Here's what I see in Exodus 4.21. And the Lord said to Moses, when you go back to Egypt, see that, you, see that you do before Pharaoh all the miracles that I have put in your power, but I will harden his heart so that he will not let the people go. Exodus 7, 2 through 5. Or just verse 3, but I will harden Pharaoh's heart, and though I multiply my signs and wonders in the land of Egypt, Pharaoh will not listen to, to you. And he actually goes on and says, the Egyptians shall know then that I am the Lord. That's the whole purpose. Exodus 10, 1 through 2. Then the Lord said to Moses, Go into Pharaoh, for I have hardened his heart and the heart of his servants, that I may show these signs of mine among them, and that you may tell in the hearing of your son and your grandson how I have dealt harshly with the Egyptians and what signs I have done among them, that you may know that I am the Lord. Or Exodus 14, my favorite, 16 through 17. They're standing out. They're backed up against the water. They're coming after them, right? And this is what God says to Moses. Lift up your staff, stretch out your hand over the sea, and divide it, that the people of Israel may go through the sea on dry ground. We love that part, don't we? I do. It's one of my favorite parts. I try to imagine, was it a wall of water? Would it just recede? I have no idea. But everything, how big was the wall? I mean, was it 50 feet high? Was it 5 feet high? I don't know. But here's what he says. And I will harden the hearts of of the Egyptians, not just Pharaoh, but of all the Egyptians. I will harden the hearts of the Egyptians so they shall go in after them and I will get glory over Pharaoh and all his hosts, his chariots and his horsemen. Listen, a good God will always be most concerned with giving glory to the one who is worth more than everything and that will be God himself. And so he will get glory. And he does so through these actions, even with Pharaoh. And we see it, if you go back and read it in the scriptures, you see, and God hardened Pharaoh's heart. Next time it says, and Pharaoh hardened his heart. And God hardened Pharaoh's heart. And then Pharaoh hardened his heart. The illustration that I love so much because I'm from here and I love this idea, right, is this. The same son of mercy. God sent Moses into Pharaoh ten times begging him basically to repent and let his people go. He showed mercy, 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 mercy over and over and over again. And what did it do? It hardened his heart. 
Every time he hardened his heart by showing mercy. The same sun that shines on the rich black earth that produces crops here. Plentiful harvest, goodness, also shines on the hard Alabama clay that makes it brittle and hard as a rock. God's mercy on the hearts of those who are not regenerate, are not being drawn to him, it hardens them. It's crazy to even understand that. Here's the question, right? When you go back and read this, and I'm not going to have time to get into all of it, but he says in verse 19, you will say to me then, why does he still find fault? For who can resist his will? In other words, it's not fair. Who can resist his will then? How can he find fault with me? He can find fault with us because all of us are rebels against God. All of us have rebelled against him. But you, who are you, O man, he says, to ask back to God, to answer back to God? Listen, make sure I'm clear. No one ever goes to hell in spite of their sincere desire to love God. It never happens. Do you understand? Those who go to hell do not love God. They do not want God. No one ever goes to condemnation who truly wanted to know and enjoy Jesus in all his glory. That never happens. People don't want that. It's not like they're turned away from God because they love God and he says, no, I didn't pick you. That's not how that works. Everybody is in rebellion against God until he takes that heart of stone out of you and puts a heart of flesh in you. And now you look at him and you see him and you see who he is and you love him because he first loved you. That's what the Bible says, right? You love him because he first loved you. That's the, the order in which things happen. To us, this is how it goes. You hear the gospel, maybe your 10th time, maybe your first time, maybe your millionth time. And all of a sudden, it makes sense. And all of a sudden, you go, I, I want that. But I, I feel conviction. I, 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 need, I need it to repent. I need to change. You don't know why it happened, how it happened. You just know you need that. And so you turn to God, God, please save me. And he saves you. Because he does not bring you to that place in reality, the depth of your heart, if you're not his, right? If he doesn't bring you into the family. And he holds your salvation because God is sovereign over our salvation. So what does it matter if we know or understand or even believe this truth? What does it matter? You may be thinking, it doesn't matter if I know or understand this. It doesn't matter if I even agree with this. Let me tell you why it matters. It matters very much. It matters in every way, I would argue. We were not God's people. But now we are God's people. We were not born into the right Jewish family, most of us. We were not a part of the old covenants. If you go on and read verse 19 through 23, verse 24 through 29, those who were not my people, I will call my people. And her who is not beloved, I will call beloved. And in the very place where it was said to them, you are not my people, there they will be called the sons of the living God. Isaiah cries out concerning Israel. Though the number of the sons of Israel be as the sand of the sea, only a remnant of them will be saved. For the Lord will carry out his sentence upon the earth fully and without delay. And as Isaiah predicted, if the Lord of hosts had not left us offspring, not of the flesh, but of the promise. That's what he's talked about, Right? Not of those that are a part of the Jewish lineage because they're descendants of Abraham physically, but those who are children of the promise, those who are of true Israel. If the Lord of hosts had not left us offspring, we would have been like Sodom and become like Gomorrah. That's what would have happened to us, destroyed. What does it matter? Because in our sinfulness, we could not overcome this. 
Look at verse 19. You will say to me then, why does he still find fault? For who can resist his will? But who are you, O man, to answer back to God? Will what is molded say to its molder, why have you made me like this? Has the potter no right over the clay to make out of the same lump one vessel for honorable use and another for dishonorable use? In fact, if you went back to the Psalms, there's a really funny one that you read. And it's basically, he says, you've got it flip-flopped. You're talking to the potter saying, hey, I should have had handles. And the wisdom of the potter says, no, 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 you're a vase. You're not that kind of pot. What if God, verse 22, desiring to show his wrath and to make known his power, has endured with much patience vessels of wrath prepared for destruction in order to make known the riches of his glory for vessels of mercy, which he has prepared beforehand for glory. Even us whom he has called, not from the Jews only, but also from the Gentiles. As indeed he says in Hosea, those who were not my people, I will call my people. And her who is not beloved, I will call beloved. Why does this matter? Because you and I weren't born in the right part of the world apart from God's sovereign work to bring the gospel to us for us to be brought into the family of God. This, and their understanding was only for that Israel nation. That's it. And he says, no, no, no. This is not about descendants physically. This is about children of the promise, right? I should have chosen Ishmael, the firstborn. I chose Isaac. I should have chosen Esau, the firstborn. I chose Jacob. And not because of anything they had done before they were born or anything they were going to do after they were born, not because of human will or exertion, but because of my sovereign election might continue and might stand. And you think, this is crazy. This impinges on my rights. It has nothing to do with impinging on your rights. This doesn't impinge on your rights. You have no rights to be eternally grafted into the family of God. That's like, that's like saying ludicrous language, right? That you, you've got to adopt me into your family. You just have to. I'm going to go to Roger later and meet Roger. I think you're a really cool dad. I've known you a long time. You coach my baseball team. You've got to adopt me into your family. That's my right. <laughs> it's not about our rights. This is about mercy. This is about God loving you so much that even in your sin that he would extend mercy to you. That today if you're hearing the gospel message, that you are hearing this because God is merciful to you. This is because even though you did not want him, he wanted you. Even though you did not know him, he already knew you. Even though you were not a part of his family, he wants you to be a part of his family because he loves you that much. This is good news. This is something you can be excited about. This is something you can tell others about. Listen, if you believe in Jesus today, that's because God, before the foundation of the earth, he wanted you. He's been drawing you to himself. He knew when you would be here. He knew when you would hear the gospel. He set all things in motion. He worked all things together for your good, for those who are called according to his person, those who love him. He's worked all these things to your good. Let's praise him for that. Thank God that although we were not a people of his, we have now been chosen to be a part of his people by faith in Christ, the righteous one. Even though we're sinners deserving of wrath, he sent his son who's the only righteous one who does not deserve condemnation, he sent him to be condemned so that we could find salvation. He chose to send Jesus to save us. That's his work, his doing, his effort, so that we could be 
brought into the family of God. He lived the perfect life we could not live because we're enslaved to our sin. Just like the Israelites were enslaved in Egypt, we are enslaved to our sin. Just like he sent Moses to go bring them out of Egypt, he sent Jesus, the greater Moses, to come bring us out of Egypt. Just as though they were kicking and screaming and didn't think they wanted it or needed it, we are the same until he draws us out into the open and brings us to life. It's, the, it's why he uses all this crazy language in scripture. He says, you must be born again. Even then, the Pharisee there goes, Nicodemus goes, you're not going to go back in the womb? Like it's crazy talk, right? He says, no, you, you, you don't understand this. You're the greatest of the teachers. He talks in Ephesians 2, you were dead in your trespasses and now God's made you alive. I don't know of any dead person that just, yeah, I'm getting up now. Doesn't work that way, right? God holds all things. It doesn't change how we live. It doesn't change how we act in the sense that we are still glorifying God, graciously receiving all that we've been given, making much of Him. The difference is, who is the big one? You or Him, right? That's the difference. The difference is, is it all because of Him and He gets all the glory? Or is it all because of Him except for this part? And then you get a little glory for making the choice. I I know you think that's crazy, right? But I I have myself had struggled before I understood these things, and still even now sometimes... I will look at someone and be like, gosh, if you just go to church, if you just get your act together, if you just believe in Jesus, this would be different for you. The Bible says they're dead. Dead. Look, here's the biggest thing. Man, here's the biggest thing. I, I, I have been overwhelmed and overjoyed to be a part of this faith family in, in so many ways. And one of them is because I've been surrounded by staff who pray for salvation for souls. We have, we have an ongoing list of people we've been praying for. And we add to it and we take them off when they come to faith. We, we, we add to it. We pray over that all week long. We, we pray over it together as a staff, sometimes in depth, sometimes not, just in brief, but we always pray over it on our own. I've seen several people I love and care about that have come to faith. And I honestly believe it's because of our prayer time together that God answered those prayers. But here's the thing, right? If you don't believe that God is sovereign even over salvation, then why do we pray for it? You believe this already or you wouldn't be praying for God to save souls. Because if there's nothing he could do to make that happen, then why are we praying for him to make it happen? But if he is sovereign over salvation, then let us beg him for the souls of those we know and love. Let us beg him for the souls of our daughters and sons. Let us beg him for the souls of our parents. Let, him, let us beg him for the souls of our friends. Let us beseech him. Let us, let us ask these type of things. Lord, you alone can save. You alone can do this. You alone can draw men to yourself. We know you hear our prayers. We know you can do this. And we beg you to save their souls. We will lift up Jesus over and over before them. But we know and we believe you will draw them to yourself, Lord. That's what scripture says, right? When Jesus is lifted, he will draw all men to himself. That you alone can save them. So we beg you, Lord, to overcome their rebellion. I'm going to pray now. We beg them, Lord. We beg you to replace their heart of stone with a heart of flesh. We, we beg you, Lord, to bring them to life. Just as your son Jesus called Lazarus out of the tomb by name, and he rose from death to life. Just as you raised your son Jesus from death to life into life eternal as the, the firstborn among many brothers. Lord, we beg you to bring to life those we know and love and care for. But Lord, we know you care even more for them. And we do not know who all will be saved. We know you know those things, but our heart yearns for those to be saved that we call out to you for. 
And you alone are the way. You alone are the truth. You alone are the life. You, your son Jesus, is the resurrection and the life. He even declares as he goes to raise Lazarus. And we will praise you in all things, Lord. This is the big thing for our hearts, Lord. It is hard to praise you over hard truths sometimes. So, Lord, work in our hearts to accept the truth of Scripture. Not, not, not to, to change our theology, not to, not to, not to shift in, in, in one side of an argument to another, but to see who you are. To see that you truly are sovereign in all things. And that you should have left us to ourselves. You should have, have thrown us into the fire, but instead, Lord, you gave us grace. We will praise you in your sovereignty. We will praise you in your election. We will praise you in your mercy. We will praise you in your grace. We will praise you even in your wrath, Lord. Just as Israel praised you as you brought down the waves upon Egypt to release them from their bondage to slavery. We do not understand it now, Lord, but we will praise you because you deserve praising. In your mercy and in your justice, you will be praised and we will praise you. Because we want to know you for exactly who you are. And we want to do whatever that means. We want to praise you for all of who you are. We will praise you in your salvation. For because of you and you alone, there is therefore now no condemnation for us who are in Christ Jesus. Lord, we could never pay you back. We could never deserve it. But Lord, we will praise you. Because you've shown us grace. We will praise you in your infinite things, even though we don't understand them. And we will praise you because you work all things together for good of those who love you and are called according to your purpose. So we praise you, O Lord, our King, Yahweh, our Protector, our Savior, our Giver, our Holder, our Sustainer, our everything. We will praise you. You are sovereign over our salvation, and we love you because you first loved us. You will learn, deserve all the glory and all the praise, Lord, forever and ever. Amen. Thank you for listening to the sermon audio from 12th Street Baptist Church. Feel free to share this with anyone you meet, and we pray that this sermon helped you to be more like Jesus, as 12th Street seeks to be a place where we can find forgiveness for the past and hope for the future.